do we smell? What role does our sense of smell play in our closest relationships? And how are brands creating scents to keep us coming back for more? I'm Anna Machen, and I'm an evolutionary anthropologist. In this series from the Bertarelli Foundation, I'm going behind the scenes of some of the most cutting-edge neuroscience research to explore our brains from before birth to after death. And this week, we're sniffing out the science of our sense of smell. Basically, genetically, we're wired so that all the receptors are coded to sort of to recognise particular molecules. The sort of emotional changes, the sort of feelings of dislocation and disconnection. And someone thought over a century ago that that smell was interesting and sexy to put in a perfume for humans. This is how we're wired. When we're walking along a busy street or through a field bursting with bloom, we're taking in the sights, sounds and, yes, smells. Whether pleasant or not so pleasant, we use our sense of smell to navigate and understand the world. From alerting us to spoiled food to helping us relax at the familiar scent of home. And just as most of us have a favourite colour or favourite song, most of us also have a favourite smell. Mine is a little bit unusual. It's the smell of a new puppy. It reminds me of the time I collected many of my new dogs, but in particular, my new puppy Scruffy, a tiny little bundle of dachshund. As we heard in our memory episode... The reason new puppy smell brings back that memory so vividly for me is that there are strong links between the parts of the brain that process smells and the emotional and memory centres of the brain, the amygdala and hippocampus. But what if I couldn't smell the smell of new puppies anymore? Thanks to COVID, there's now a lot more awareness of what it's like to lose this important sense. But it wasn't always this way, as Duncan can attest. So I lost my sense of smell when I was 22 years old, when I went on a night out with friends and tripped on a flight of stairs, fell backwards and landed on a concrete floor on the back of my head. Woke up in a hospital and was there for a week. And it was when I got out of hospital that I realised I couldn't smell. I went to see my uh, doctor who basically said, OK, I've heard of this happening before, but we don't really know very much about this. Uh, we know very little about the sense of smell. It might come back of its own accord. If it doesn't, you'll just have to live with it. And that was that was the extent of the uh, medical advice I got at the time, which, which really has led me to spend the next six years thinking I was one of the only people on the planet with this, having lost something that I didn't even know you could lose and that no one, no one knew anything about. It affected my life in all sorts of ways, quite subtle, but quite impactful ways. The sort of emotional changes, the sort of feelings of dislocation and disconnection from the world around me and from other people. And, you know, it had an impact on my relationships with girlfriends because I always felt there was this distance that I couldn't sort of bridge. And um, I didn't connect any of this with losing my sense of smell. From feeling emotionally disconnected to not being able to fully taste the flavour of food, losing his sense of smell made a huge impact on Duncan's life and actually almost cost him his life too. Well, about five years after I'd lost my sense of smell, I was living in this flat with flatmate Adrian where the kitchen was off one side of the stairwell and the rest of the flat was off the other. And at that time, I still smoked. And we had had dinner together. We'd gone out for the night with separate groups of friends. I got home first. 
I went into the kitchen with an unlit cigarette to get a beer out of the fridge. And I remember this clearly. Opening the fridge, getting the can out. I was about to light the cigarette, and then I thought, no, I won't, because I don't want to get smoke in the stairwell. I'll wait till I get back over to the other side. That decision saved my life, because the next day when I saw my housemates, basically he'd got home, and the kitchen was full of gas, because we hadn't turned the cooker off properly. And when he told me that, there was this sort of light bulb moment of, oh my God, it hadn't even occurred to me that I'd needed to take precautions around things like gas. And because, again, going back to my experience with the doctor and the total lack of support and information I got about this, there was no one there to tell me. I just had to sort of work it all out for myself. We'll hear more from Duncan later. So what's happening in the brain when we smell something? And when does the sense of smell develop? I spoke with Carl Philpott. He's a professor of rhinology and olfactology at the University of East Anglia, where he leads research into smell disorders and actually created the UK's first smell and taste clinic. First things first, how do we smell? First bit really is getting smells into your nose. About 10 to 15% of the air that we take into the nose at the front reaches the olfactory cleft, which is the bit of the nose at the top where the smell receptors live. The things we smell around us, we smell as mixtures. So the molecules in a mixture dissolve in the nasal mucus and then the individual molecules dock with the receptors. Now, basically, genetically, we're wired so that all the receptors are coded to sort of to recognise particular molecules. And so once that molecule is docked with the receptor, you get a sort of reaction inside and you get a response in the neuron. Each receptor is wired to a glomerulus, which is a sort of area of connectivity within the olfactory bulb, the relay station at the top of the nose between the smell nerves that come up from the nose and the ones that connect into the brain. Beyond the bulb, you've then got the second order neurons which connect through into the primary olfactory cortex. The neurons then pass on to the secondary olfactory cortex, which is just above the top of the nose. Just the key area where we kind of perceive odours. And is it true to say, I mean, I come from an obviously an evolutionary, human evolutionary background, and we were always taught that compared to other mammals, the olfactory areas of our brain are much reduced compared to other mammals. And we rely on olfaction maybe less to help us, for example, orientate ourselves in the environment or in the work I do, for example, in terms of mating behaviour and, and that kind of thing. Is that true? I think it's more that we sort of ignore the olfactory system as a conscious level, or certainly in Western culture we do. If you look back in time at sort of how people valued smell as a means of sort of communication, a means of social interactivity, then it was rated much higher in ancient times than it is in the modern world. We sort of tend to sort of sanitise our smells, I guess, these days. So if you look at tribes in the Amazon in, you know, forests, I mean, they've got a huge range of vocabulary around words they use around flavour and smell because they appreciate in a much greater way the sort of the input it has into, into sort of uh, their conscious kind of being. Whereas I think in the Western world, we've reduced it down. We kind of think sight is important and hearing is important and, and less so on, on the smell front. It's only really when, and I see this you know, most potently through the work I do, is that when people lose it with various disorders, that they suddenly kind of go, now I realise what that did. Now I realise how, how important it was and how, how it not just affects eating, but it affects how I feel about my partner, how I you know interact with my children, how I appreciate sort of just going for a walk and smelling the fresh cut grass and you know, all the sort of, the pleasures and interweaving of life that you suddenly become sort of very monochrome. Okay, so actually, in a sense, in the West, we underestimate 
what it brings to our lives, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. I think that's really. I didn't realize there was that cross cultural difference. That's really, really interesting. That has that that cultural element yeah, to it. Yeah, yeah. So, when do we start to develop our sense of smell? Do we have a sense of smell in the womb? A number of neonatal studies have been been done about sort of you know preference to breast milk. So they they recognise the smell of mum sort of yes in, in, within the womb, and, and certainly it's, it's very much active from the word go. Obviously, their sort of familiarity with a range of smells is limited to what they're exposed to, and, and uh, you know that sort of cultural. And what we talk about is hedonics of smells, our appreciation of sort of pleasure, what's pleasant and unpleasant within odours, is very much kind of learned from our surroundings and from our upbringing. Okay, that's really interesting. And can our sense of smell sort of change over our life course? So does it, with age, for example, degenerate? Or are there certain stages in life that affect our sense of smell? I seem to remember when I was pregnant that certain smells suddenly became really disgusting yes like i couldn't smell ginger without feeling sick or lavender without feeling yeah. sick what's happening there so i mean the pregnancy is a really interesting one because there's there's lots of people have tried to kind of research what happens to smell in pregnancy and no one's really kind of you know ever demonstrated a clear difference between a pregnant woman and a pregnant woman or a pregnant woman and a man as to what's going on you know i can remember my wife i mean you know she sort of you know suddenly became sort of you know cooking onions was a problem you know a lot of pregnant women experience a change I also see some people who feel that the pregnancy was the thing that made their sense of smell deteriorate and start to disappear. We know that pregnancy rhinitis is, a, is an issue that affects one in three women so that the inside of your nose gets congested because of the rising estrogen levels. But, you know, if you look at smell and, and the various studies have been done, no one's really kind of shown a difference. They haven't shown changes in threshold. They haven't shown changes in identification ability. But there clearly is a sort of, you know, an unpleasant thing that goes on. But in terms of the other parts of the aging process, then yes, I mean, after the age of 65, we do know that the glomeruli I talked about before, these these areas of connectivity in the olfactory bulb, they start to involute and disappear after the age of 65. And then the other thing, when you get to the age of 80, is that the little holes in the skull base, where the nerves travel through from the nose to the olfactory bulb, start to fibrose and close. So potentially you're shutting down the eventual roots through from the, from the nose. As we know... It's not just age that can cause smell loss. Duncan suffered a head injury and many people lost their sense of smell when they got COVID. So how does that work? Eva's here to explain. Like with all our senses, our sense of smell is based on turning a stimulus, in this case chemical molecules, into a message that our brain can understand. It's a process that occurs in a few steps from smell molecules hitting the right receptors in the nose to the brain being able to respond to stimulation. What that means is, if anything goes wrong with any one of those steps, our ability to smell can be affected. For example, the chemical molecules that make up a smell need to be able to get up into the nose to access the smell receptors in the olfactory cleft. This happens when we sniff or breathe in through our nose. When you're congested, though, those molecules aren't making it up there, so you can't smell properly. Equally, if you have a growth in your nose, like a nasal polyp, that can act as a mechanical obstruction to being able to smell something. Then there can be problems with the smell receptors themselves. When it comes to COVID-related smell loss, it's thought that the coronavirus that causes COVID infects supporting cells called the sustenticular cells, which normally provide nutrients and structure to the cells that house the smell receptors. They're called the olfactory sensory neurons. This could cause a secondary effect on the sensory neurons themselves, leading to the loss of smell. If we look further along the process, head injuries can cause smell loss in several ways. 
Bruising to the brain can cause damage to the olfactory cortex, the part of the brain that receives information from the olfactory bulb and allows you to perceive smell. MRI scans can show whether a loss of smell after injury is likely due to this type of brain damage. And unfortunately, once that tissue is gone, it's likely an irreversible situation. In a high impact injury like a car accident, you can also get shearing of the nerve fibers that carry the smell information. In those cases, the olfactory part of the brain itself isn't damaged, and about one in three people will recover their sense of smell, as those nerve fibres can grow back over time. And then, like with most medical scenarios, there are those situations where doctors just can't work out what the cause of the smell loss is. Those cases are idiopathic, but sometimes they can hint towards another underlying condition. So those are some of the main mechanisms by which people can lose their sense of smell. But there are others too. Alzheimer's patients, for example, commonly lose their sense of smell. And there's evidence that smell loss could be an early predictor for the structural brain changes that make Alzheimer's so devastating. And it's not just Alzheimer's, as Carl told me. 90% of people, when they get a clinical diagnosis of Parkinson's disease, have already lost their sense of smell. And that probably happens around five years leading up to that point. My father has Parkinson's and actually I've never asked him, so I'll need to ask him okay. whether that's something that's, yeah, that's happened yeah. to him. That's really interesting. So we've been involved with a study looking at trying to see if we increase the sort of screening profile for Parkinson's by looking at other things that happen beforehand. We may allow you to predict Parkinson's before we actually get it. That's really interesting. Wow, okay. And what about people who can still smell... But we would say maybe their sense of smell is corrupted in some way. So my lovely stepdaughter, who's a key worker, managed to get COVID four times. Oh, wow. <laughs> I know. She's, she, she's had them all. Her sense of smell is kind of now corrupted. So something that should smell nice smells unpleasant and particularly smells particularly sort of she says it smells a little bit like a very dusty musty building site okay so yeah. what's going on there so that's what we call parosmia so distortion of smell unfortunately most of the time or certainly the other times all i hear about it is unpleasant in the majority there are rare descriptions of pleasant parosmia that we call euosmia but most of the time it's an unpleasant distortion and so we get a lot of smell of garbage when they're eating food or stuff smells putrid so common sort of stimuli for parosmia seem to be cooking onion and garlic, coffee, sometimes toothpaste can do it. So it's a really difficult thing for people to contend with because it distorts their any enjoyment of food. And so about a third of those people will lose weight as a consequence. Why does it happen? There are a couple of theories around what might be going on. One is that, um, as I was talking before about that we smell things as mixtures, as the sense of smell starts to recover and some of the smell receptors start to come back online, if you're only picking up some parts of the jigsaw, you're getting some information, but it's not all of the right information. The other theory is that as the olfactory receptors start to regrow, is that they rewire incorrectly. There are currently no cures for smell disorders, but there's a lot of research ongoing trying to change that. Carl is currently running a trial looking at the use of vitamin A, which is known to influence DNA synthesis. The thinking being that encouraging DNA synthesis may help with the regeneration of damaged or lost smell receptors. There's also evidence that smell training, where you repeatedly expose yourself to different scents for a few minutes a day for several months, can improve smell performance. But unfortunately for people like Duncan, whose smell loss was caused by a brain injury, these techniques are unlikely to help. However, after years of little interest from the medical community, 
Duncan did eventually get some insight. I asked my GP to refer me to Carl's clinic. It was really interesting because Carl did an examination. He put an endoscope up my nose and he did a CT scan. And what we found was that in addition to whatever damage I'd done when I, I hit my head, that I had another issue in the structure of my nose, the very little air actually getting up to the um, olfactory cleft where the receptor cells are. So I had an operation. And whilst that, you know, that was never going to correct the damage that was done to my brain, but what it did was um, I noticed a, a, a slight improvement in my uh, flavour perception, my ability to perceive flavour of food, only very slight, but there was something there. And, you know, let's face it, anything was a positive. So that was one of the things that said to me and, you know, why anyone and everyone who is affected by a problem with their sense of smell, you know, should get access to consultation with a, with a specialist. So in 2012, I created the first charity for people with smell and taste disorders called Fifth Sense with Carl Philpott. We provide support, information, and a signpost to potential diagnosis and treatment where such exists. We uh, work to educate society on what it means to suffer an impairment of one or both of these senses. And we also play an important role in driving forwards patient-driven research into smell test disorders. For anyone to lose their sense of smell would be devastating. But what if your livelihood was based on being able to smell? And not just smell, but smell really, really well. Dawn Goldworm is one such person. Through her companies 1229 and Scent for Good, she relies on her sense of smell to create scents that evoke emotional memories, both for individuals like singer Lady Gaga and model Kate Moss, and for brands. We visited Dawn in her gorgeous and fragrant New York office, where we chatted surrounded by tiny glass bottles of mysterious liquids. So I had no idea that I was going to end up in perfumery or researching the brain at all. I had interned at Avon in the fragrance department doing trend forecasting when I was quite young. And they called me when I was finishing up my year and said, you know, Don, we need someone. Are you interested? And I, I didn't really know what I was interested in, but I thought, okay, I don't know what I'm about to do. And they sent me to a perfumery school and had my nose tested. He gave me a blotter, a mouillette in French, which is kind of a long piece of paper that is used for testing perfume. It's a specific type of paper, specific weight, has little measured lines on it. So you get the same dip every single time. And he dipped it in a tiny little bottle and said, okay, smell this. You might know what it is. You might not know what it is, but you know, tell me what you think. So I smelled it. And I said, okay, it's a flower. You know, I didn't know any of the language vocabulary. So I said, it's a flower. He said, okay, good. What else? I said, it's pink. And then I said, I don't know. I think it smells like rose. He's like, yes. He goes, it's floral. It's rose like it's spicy. It's waxy. It's green. It's rose absolute. And I was like, oh, okay. This could be fun. And then he shows me uh, another one and he dips it and shows it to me. He goes, what about this one? I said, well, now keep in mind, I'm like 21, 22, something like that. I was like, it smells like a mojito. <laughs> He's like, yes, it's mint. Then he gives me a few more and then dips another one, gives it to me. He said, okay, you're not going to know what this is, but tell me what you smell. So I'm smelling. I said, I smell rose. He said, good. What else do you smell? I said, I smell mint. 
He goes, good, rose and mint together equal geranium. This is geranium. And so he kept doing that over and over again. So when you understand jasmine, which is benzyl acetate and endol, two different chemicals, and then you add wintergreen, you have ylang, and then you add coconut and methylanthranolate, which is grape, and then you have tuberose. And he kept doing it. And somehow my brain was able to do that with him. It was able to learn in the moment. What was happening was I was smelling, I was learning, and I was compartmentalizing into my memory. And then I was able to pull it back out of my memory to grow on it within that hour. And he said, okay, you have it. And I was like, okay, what do I do now? He's like, I'm going to start training you. Whose office, by the way, is full of about 100 teddy bears. It was a really bizarre first encounter, kind of comforting, but also weird to have all these little eyes staring at me for a test I didn't prepare for. That's absolutely (laughs) brilliant. It sounds like a fascinating career as well that's taken you all over the world. Yes, I've done some very interesting things from meeting with the biggest celebrities on the planet backstage, half naked, to being on cruise ships and that being my job, to couture shows, to the tallest buildings in the world, like all sorts of interesting adventures to just figure out what different experiences smell like. So how do you, you work with brands to build a scent, I assume. Why do brands come to you? What do they want to achieve? So, you know, I was working for Avon at the beginning of my career and then Cody, which is the largest fragrance manufacturer and doing, you know, lots of perfumes for celebrity perfumes, lifestyle, fashion, all very interesting. And most of the time when I was given a brief, it was about someone's memory of a smell somewhere in the world, the last holiday they went on, their childhood, their favorite something. And then I said, well, if individuals want me to do this, what about brands? Don't brands want to have that same powerful connection with the people they're talking to? And so I went back to school. I went back to graduate school at NYU and I started writing a thesis on olfactive branding because I thought, wow, if brands can harness this power of smell and emotion and memory, then they can really create this bond around their community and maybe it can transform into more loyalty. And so that's what we do today. So we work with a brand like Valentino, and they say, okay, this is who we are today. When I started working with Valentino, Mr. Valentino had stepped away. Two new creative directors had taken over, and they said, okay, this is the brand we are today. These are the ideals that we want to project. And I said, okay, but tell me more. Tell me about the history of the brand. So we went through the archives. They told me that Valentino was very much steeped in the history of Rome. So it's a lot about religion. It's a lot about the building of the city of Rome, the power struggle, the politics. The color red is influenced by different religious icons, but also by blood and about birth and life and human experience and love and all of these things. So we really went into what Valentino means. And I said, okay, but we don't talk about smell. I'm not really interested what they think about smell. That's why I'm showing up. And then I go away and I translate all of that information into a scent. And then for Valentino, they use that scent in all of their stores globally. And then they use it on all of their shows. So every Valentino experience you have smells the same. And they also created a candle years ago with Sir Trudon. So let's say you buy that candle and you bring it home and you burn the Valentino candle. What do you think someone's thinking about? It goes into background noise or background smells. So they're doing something else and all of a sudden they find themselves thinking about, I don't know, those new pair of shoes that they want to buy. I need a new pair of sandals for spring. Who do you think they're going to buy? They're going to buy Valentino sandals because they're, they're thinking about it in their head already and they don't even know it's because of the candle. And it's not manipulation. It's just branding. It's branding as much if you would buy something and you would have it displayed in your house or displayed on your body. It's the same thing. It's just through smell. And so we do that over and over again for brands so that they can create that bond and so they can potentially have 
customers coming back and back again. Now, can we control the emotional experience they have with a brand to make sure that they come back? No. <laughs> but we can play with it a little bit because we know how scent through those olfactive preferences we talk about hit you in childhood so we can play with them when you're an adult. If we know there's different smells from your childhood, like the smell of baby products that made you feel comfortable and safe, we can put them in the scent. If we know there are different things like sun care products that made you felt free and fun on the beach, we can put those in the scent. And we do that. So we can kind of play on the emotional space, but it's really the brand's responsibility to make sure you have a positive experience. And then the scent kind of empowers that more so it brings them back to you. Okay. So in a way, it's uh, like an olfactory logo. So yeah, we all know the logos. We know Valentino's logo. Yes. As you say, we might display that on our clothing or you know the bag we carry. This is just the same. It's just looking at it in a slightly different way. Absolutely. Let's say your brand came to you and they actually wanted to change the perception we have of them. Maybe, I don't know, maybe people thought, oh, the brand's kind of over. It's a little bit fusty. Could we then use smell to help people to re-perceive that brand in a new way? So we did that recently with Cadillac. Cadillac was repositioning themselves from, as they said, your grandparents' Cadillac to the new and improved cool Cadillac. And if you remember, I think it was about four years ago during the Oscars and the Super Bowl, there's all these really cool ads in Cadillac. You can see a lot of them in cities now. They were focusing on the U.S. market, and they really wanted to dip into what a modern consumer would drive. Um, and they wanted that to be a Cadillac. And so we created a smell that did exactly that, that would change your perception. And we used a lot of modern ingredients that people perceive today with notes of optimism and modernity. And so we used notes of coffee and cassis, which is like a juicy red berry note and leather, of course, for the smell of like a new car. Not that that's its own smell. We actually create those smells too. Um, but to give the perception of a new car. And it worked brilliantly. They still create candles and people buy them. So they have the smell of Cadillac at home. Wow. Okay. That's interesting. Right. Excellent. We also create a lot of candles for banks that people like the smell of at home. I'm not sure I want the smell of my bank. I think I might just feel a bit stressed. I would think that people wouldn't want to bring the smell home. But I think with some banks, especially the banks that are brands, it creates a sense of exclusiveness and loyalty and people want that smell in their home. At this point, I was really keen to start smelling some of Dawn's creations. Dawn went over to a small fridge and started pulling out bottles and cases, while explaining that if you don't go through perfumes faster than every three years, which is me, I'm afraid, you should keep them in the fridge. So I'll be taking that tip to heart. So one of the small boxes here, their co-phrase, is different examples of brands that we worked with. So I'll show you a few of those examples. And then the other one is I pulled some raw materials. So you can see here. Oh, wow. I just, so it's like a leather box, which is just loads and loads of tiny little bottles. And each bottle's got a label. And that, so those are essential... Essential oils, ingredients, okay. raw materials. And that's a mixture of naturals, what we call naturals, an ingredient that comes from normally the ground that we've harnessed and put into a usable form for the industry, or synthetics or molecules. Now, obviously, everything's a molecule, but not everything's a synthetic. So synthetic molecules are man-made. We have scientists in the industry that make molecules for perfumery. Does the possibility exist then if we can build a synthetic smell of finding a whole new smell? Yeah, we've done that. There's plenty of things in here that are whole new smells that don't exist in nature and in your perfume. So musk is a great example. Mm. So musk used to come from deer glands. Nice. The reproductive <laughs> parts of deers. We created Lovely. the smell of musk. So when musk deers and a specific type of deer is in heat, 
it gives off a particular smell. And someone thought over a century ago that that smell was interesting and sexy to put in a perfume for humans. Not exactly sure why. Maybe they thought that that was a smell that would make humans more sexy. And a lot of people thought that after for a very long time. And so they would do something pretty sad to the deer to get that smell. So we won't go into what they had to do that deer. We no longer use any animal ingredients in the perfume industry and haven't for some time. And so we had to recreate the smell of musk. It smells nothing like it did then. I've smelled real musk because we still have it kind of floating around the industry. The musk we have today smells like nothing, close to it. The musk we have today smells like a cloud. It smells like a cloud. Okay. The closest you could get if you thought that a cloud had a smell. <laughs> that's brilliant. Yes. And so that's an example of, although it's based on an ingredient that exists in nature, it really doesn't have so much to do with okay. it anymore. So there's so many type of musk now, synthetic musk that we use. This is just one. Okay. I'm very excited to know what a cloud smells like. So this I is can a- kind of see what you mean. It's kind of like it has a, an air quality to it. It's kind of fluffy. Yeah. It's a very comforting smell, relaxing into like cotton wool. Mm. You can access your olfactive memory. So if you smell something and you've, you have an olfactive memory associated with it, you can able to tell me your olfactive memory and then how you feel, which is why you said it could be comforting because you do have an olfactive memory around it. Yeah, I think it's comforting because I think it has an essence of maybe perfumes. My mother, my mother wore many, many different sorts of perfumes. Mm. And, um, that's lovely. Maybe that's why it's comforting. It's also in a lot of baby products, Uh, laundry detergents and cleaners. And it's in every single perfume that's pretty much on the market now. But yes, when we talk about those first 10 years of your life, your mother having this in all of her perfumes, that's where the most comforting part comes in. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. That's musk. Oh, and this is Nike. Yes. This is Nike. And I can see why. Yes. So with Nike, they're like, they're all about inspiration. Nike is all about empowerment, being your best self, going that extra mile, just doing it, right? Their logo. And so how do you translate Nike into a smell? Everyone does Nike. How do you create a scent for everyone? Well, you look at sport. Everyone's had an experience with sport. And I looked at the smell of a soccer cleat in dirt, the smell of dirt we put in there, the smell of grass, the smell of leather, the smell of sweat, a basketball. As a basketball gets oily from your hand, it has a very specific smell on your hand. The smell of a sneaker when it skids on the basketball court, that sound of the rubber getting warm on the basketball court with the veneer of the floor has a very specific smell, the laminate from the floor as it warms up. So looking at all these different smells, the smell of being at a gym, of the rubber mixing with your sweat, what does that smell like? What does that feel like? Putting these all together, that's the smell of Nike. Wow. So when people smell Nike, they're like, oh, yeah. And when we give it to people, people know that it's Nike. Yeah. Um, no, you really do because that's opening a box of like fresh sneakers. or, And you can smell the rubber. Mm. It's One of amazing. the most predominant scents in our environments and globally today is the smell of off gases. Mm. They come off of plastic mm. and rubber and everything that we consume in our lives from food to products, it's everywhere. And that has a lot of those smells. People love it because of it. Yeah, that's a happy smell, I think. Yeah. Which is weird because I'm rubbish at sport. So am I. But Nike is about living your best life, yes. being your best self, because it just makes you feel... Yeah, happy and elated and optimistic. And you're like, yeah, I can do this. Yeah, it's a really alive smell. Yes. Isn't it? That's amazing. 
In addition to creating scents for brands, Dawn, through her company Scent for Good, creates scents for hospitals to evoke more positive, relaxing emotions than those we typically feel upon encountering the smells of latex and bleach on a ward. And as Duncan mentioned, he is also making a difference through the charity he runs with Carl, Fifth Sense. It's been 17 years um, since I lost my sense of smell and there's been no you know, significant change in that time. And um, as things stand, in terms of, you know, the, the sort of treatments that are out there, I'm not expecting to change in my lifetime. And that that's difficult. I sort of spend more time thinking about the charity and the work that we're doing and other people than I do about my own situation. But there are still times when it really, really gets to me. But, you know, there's the hope that through the work that we're doing, through the, you know, the, the, the clinicians, the scientists, all the people we're working with, that things, things will change. I would say that the significant impact of starting the charity and, you know, the success that we've had and the work we've done over the past 10 years or so has been that I've taken what was by far the most negative experience in my life and turned it into something incredibly positive, um, something that other people have benefited and continue to benefit from. We've brought people together and enabled people to share their experiences, their stories, their tips, and provide this sort of mutually beneficial support. And I've seen time and time again, even during COVID with the virtual sessions that we do, that can be really, really powerful sometimes, the hugely beneficial effect of just enabling people, giving people an opportunity to talk, share, listen, learn, and go, you know what, I'm not alone. And that's it for this week. We're back in a few weeks where we're growing up with the neuroscience of puberty and adolescence. From the complexity of hormones to how the brain changes during this critical period of development. And just for extra pleasure, it features an interview with my very own daughter. In the meantime, join us in two weeks for another one of our Focus episodes, where Eva's uncovering the science of taste, with the help of MasterChef UK semi-finalist Rob Parks and taste expert and MasterChef UK guest judge Barry Smith. I'm Anna Machen, and this is How We're Wired. This has been a Fresh Air production for the Bertarelli Foundation. Follow now for free so you never miss an episode. 